Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I am Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? Pretty good. Uh, are you sta- sitting right next to me? Like right next to me? You know, it feels like that only because um, my heart is so close to you. You know, <laughs> I mean, emotionally, but right. physic- but physically on the the earth itself, no, I am not sitting right next to you. I'm actually yeah, in, fact, I'm actually in the Big Apple, New York City. New York City right now. So here I am in little old Sheboygan, and there you are in New York City, and it's like we're in the same room. It's uh, modern technology. Oh, this is great. It's, it's amazing. And um uh and New York is buzzing. Let me tell you, it's uh you can tell you can feel the energy of people wanting to um re-enter uh, normalcy mm-hmm. and society. And, um, and I also know that I'm in New York because I had lunch today with my son and we had two chicken sandwiches and a couple of beers and it was a hundred dollars. <laughs> so right. I do know, I do know very well that I am no longer in Kansas or Wisconsin. <laughs> Well, good for you. A uh, good time to get away now that we can start traveling again. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got a trip to North Carolina coming up in a, in a few weeks. But yeah, anxious to get back out on the road and do some things. Are, are people still wearing masks there? So, yes, and mostly. Uh, in most businesses, you have to. Um, so out on the street, a lot of them have like the masks are on, but they're pulled down. <laughs> which, which is very ineffective, but <laughs> well, I guess, you know, if you get within six feet or something, but, um, uh, so, and some people, you know, and then there's a smattering of people with zero masks. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's probably about the same. I see in Milwaukee. Is there still a mandate there that, that requires it? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. Oh, okay. I was I was more judging it just mandate wise on what businesses will you know require you before you can walk in. Right. So right. I don't I don't know what the state says, but I assume that they still have it. But actually, now that the CDC says no, okay, you yeah, don't well. if you're if you're vaccinated. Which, right. by the way, which by the way, that really seems like the biggest like PR blunder. Um, or at least messaging blunder on their part to say, to come out with this without really like coordinating it with the white house for starters. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and second of all, and second of all, they, they're coming out with this thing that says, well, if you're vaccinated, you can take off your mask, but there's no instructions about like, you know, how do we enforce this? How do we determine if people are vaccinated? Number one. And, um, and, and, and yet, uh, there's certain exceptions to that, which of course is lost in the message. You know, there's certain places that even if you're vaccinated, you're supposed to wear a mask. So according to their own guidelines. So it was just, I don't know. It, it, it did seem uh, a little odd to me that, I mean, and it came very hot on the heels of the, the previous message where, you know, things are getting better. Not, we're not out of the clear yet. And then, so, you know, as you know, here in Wisconsin, what I think Milwaukee still has some kind of a mandate in the city. Right. But, yes. uh, in Sheboygan, for example, I haven't seen anybody wear a mask indoors except people that are working in restaurants and things. But, you know, so Home Depot, nobody is wearing a mask. Um, the grocery store, nobody's wearing a mask. It's it's interesting. Um, but I am 
waiting for the day when we don't have to wear masks in court anymore. And I know that there was this uh, thing that came down where the courts are, or I don't know who, what, who's in charge of this. Somebody in the, the government, uh, the state government said that most state offices and state buildings will be, um, will lift the mandate to, to require masks in those settings. But I haven't heard anything about whether that applies in courtrooms or not. Hmm. And of course the courtrooms, while the judges are, state employees and, and many of the lawyers are state employees, the courtrooms are run by counties. Right. So, um, yes, but the, there is the, the reason why we have to have all these uh, procedures in place and the plans in place is because the state Supreme court has to, um, authorize those particular plans. And it, it runs through the court administrator for the particular districts. So I don't know. I mean, there was a big, to do about whether or not the the rules that flow to the courts come from the Supreme Court's regulatory power, you know, or if it's something that um, is on a county level or <laughs> perhaps some other level. <laughs> hmm. Well, I am looking forward to the no mask thing, too. Um, to be honest, uh, I wear the mask into court, but when I'm asking questions, I always pull it down. Mm-hmm. And I know we're not supposed to, but nobody's corrected me, so I'm just <laughs> doing it. I'm going to write a letter to the judge ahead of time next time you have a case and say, be on the lookout because Attorney Berthold will we have probably a, We have a scout <laughs> in our presence who is flouting the rules. Um, so yeah, I know that while you're there in uh, New York City, which is the uh, one-time home of a fellow that has his name on a bunch of buildings and stuff, there, but now no longer a resident of the state or city of New York. One former president uh, that now lives in Florida. And uh, I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> really, is this it's like a, a is this like a Jeopardy question? Let's see. Uh, th- th- who, yeah. Who, who is, is, um, is LaGuardia? Um, who <laughs> is um, uh, like I don't know. I'm stumped. Well, I know <laughs> you've been following a story regarding. Uh, you know, the uh, Southern District of New York and I believe the um, Manhattan, uh, you know, district attorney's office has some investigations going on. What what can you tell us about that? Well, what do you know? Well, well <laughs> oh, man, there is a lot brewing. And the thing is, it's kind of a guessing game on everybody's part. Obviously, investigations go on and they're by their very nature, you know, pretty secretive, except for the occasional little news bump where a search warrant is executed or, you know, um, something else breaks that gives us some clues, at least educated clues about like where things are going. So obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, maybe it's not obvious to everybody, but um, the Manhattan district attorney is, has been involved for, I don't know, a couple of years now number of years, um, investigating the Trump organization and particularly Donald's, uh, seeking Donald Trump's taxes, which he now has um, and has had for some time since the Supreme Court decision um, uh, allowing him to get that. You know, if you remember back at the Supreme Court argument about the, the uh, uh, Trump's um, attempt to block getting, because he was sitting president, um, to getting those taxes, 
the, that um, the argument was that, you know, you cannot, a sitting president is immune from any investigation. That was essentially well, I, that wasn't the argument since, since a sitting president is immune from prosecution, that they should also be, you know, that an investigation would be superfluous or irrelevant or something like that. Because it was, it was something yeah. like that. Right. Yeah. Well, that was soundly rejected. So the, the records are in possession of Cyrus Vance, who is leaving office. <clears throat> so the interesting part about that investigation, and that is not the news bump that's most recent. That's at the AG's office. But this is just relevant background. So the the Manhattan DA, Cyrus Vance, is leaving office. And this is a very interesting time for him to be doing that. And, and there's actually a, an election now currently um, being contested to take his place. But as he's going out, it looks like this is going to be his swan song. And he has appointed a... Um, ex-federal prosecutor and um, expert in white-collar crime to um, uh, to uh, and an outside accounting firm to um, examine these taxes. And it just feels and smells like there's criminal charges coming mm-hmm. uh, because he wouldn't have done all that if he was just going to pass it off to whoever is the next successor in his office. That's my guess. Right. I know, obviously, no inside information. Now, that was that's all taking place. Then at the same time, Letitia James, who's the New York AG, had been conducting a civil inquiry into the Trump, uh, the Trump organization. Um, and last week, her office said it was joining the criminal investigation being conducted by Cyrus Vance. Mm-hmm. And that move was communicated in the letter from James to the Trump organization, and it significantly raises the stakes for Trump, who now has three separate criminal investigations. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, and I don't know. It's it's a he's accused of falsely manipulating the value of Trump organization properties in order to secure bank loads and lucrative tax breaks. You know where they that started, Mike mm-hmm. Cohen. Right, exactly. Uh-huh. Well, we got to take a break, so we'll continue this discussion okay. when we come back right after these messages. And we are back in New York City. Well, I am. <laughs> One of us uh, is back. And you want to be. Uh, yeah, I do. Because I know you I enjoy romping around the Big Apple. Well, the weather's delightful this Memorial Day weekend here in Wisconsin, so I just, just want you to know. Well, that's true, and it's supposed to rain quite a bit the next few days, so... And, and we had planned on doing some grilling, so I don't know what's going to happen there. But um, yeah. yeah, well, um, again, talking about sure. the um, investigations yeah, so that are going on, the fact, the fact that they involve these tax records. Now, the, the interesting thing, and I don't think a lot of people that are uh, you, ha- you have to be familiar with how these tax investigations run in order to understand the complexity and really the challenge that's involved with them. Because simply having those tax records turned over is really just the tip of the iceberg in most situations. Because when criminal activity occurs in the context of you know, tax avoidance is usually what we're talking about. When someone has uh, a team of lawyers and accountants that are busy with a very complex uh, tax situation, 
uh, often, t- you know, those people's jobs, the, the lawyers and the accountants, their job is to make it so that the taxpayer um, has the minimal amount of tax liability. It's up to the taxpayer, however, usually to provide that in- the information that the lawyers and accountants will then rely upon. I know in my dealings with accountants, they, you know, make it very clear that they take no uh, responsibility for the accuracy of the information that's being processed. So if I say, yeah, you know, I've got a, I'm, I'm these are my business ask, uh, expenses for A, B, and C. And if I'm really not uh, using those funds towards true business expenses, but I'm buying myself, you know, 50 fur coats or something like that, then um, that's my fault. I'm the one that gets in trouble, not necessarily my accountants and lawyers. However, you know, I know that this is partly why Cohen was um, probably uh, looking at being in some kind of trouble because he himself knew about the shady practices and was advising Donald Trump well, he was, about... He was conspiring, basically. He was conspiring with... And, him in, uh, and if, if you remember the expose in the New York Times, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago... Um, and this, is, of course, is like ancient history, according to the statute of limitations, but about the origin of Trump's wealth and how his father, as a real estate baron in the city, um, had massively manipulated all sorts of like invoices for his properties in terms of like services and vendors and things like that in order to, um, you know, like fake amounts uh, and then and then those the excesses would be kicked back into funds for his children to avoid taxes and so um, uh, and of course none of that um, goes to Donald Trump but he was he learned from the master and that's exactly what Cohen was saying was he would minimize the value of his um, assets for tax purposes and then maximize them um, right. for uh, the purposes of getting loans. And of course, right. it's like if you say, oh, I've got this, I've got this old rundown house that isn't worth anything. So I shouldn't pay very many taxes on it. Then you turn around and say, I have this masterpiece of a mansion that anyone would love to buy. It was kind of remarkable. The vast sums of money banks were, willing to pay to him over the years. And of course, less, less so most more recently, but um, man. True. But you know how that works. You've, I've seen it happen. I know people that have gotten into that mess where they, you know, you, you get your, you get access and get used to borrowing large sums, but then you got to borrow something else to pay for that. And then you got to borrow something else to pay for that. And all of it depends upon, keeping your fingers crossed and just somehow keeping the train rolling. It's kind of like a Ponzi scheme, you know, it, it only works as long as you keep fooling the next person into giving you the money, you know? Um, and if you do that, then yeah, you are paying all the people down that, that trickle down the train and they don't know any better. And it looks like you are solvent when really you're not. Um, but what I was getting at with these investigations into tax um, crimes is that they're difficult because the evidence never comes right from the tax records because those aren't going to prove. I mean, they're not going to implicate anything or anybody because that's the whole point is that whatever records they have on hand that justify claims that were made for particular expenses or deductions or losses or whatever, they, they have to be 
checked against what really happened. And that's, that's the challenge in these investigations. Um, you know, typical taxpayers like you and I, you know, that may have, most people have one bank account or maybe two or three, you know, if you have a business account then you got a savings account. Um, but if you have like, you know, 75 different accounts that, that are all crisscrossing all over the place and it, with the express purpose of making it difficult to track funds. Because after all, you know, any tax investigation, including any audit, what they're really checking for is to make sure that when money, money comes in and money goes out and doesn't go anywhere else. Right. Um, that you're not, you, you didn't sell something and then put deposit that in a bank account without claiming that profit or you, you didn't, you know, so if you're using a bank for your, your own funding, then, you know, it's supposed to go, it's supposed to even out. Everything's supposed to zero out. Now, you know, we all know that sometimes people deal in cash for that very reason, because cash can be spent um, without ha- having to account for it. That's, you know, the classic paying people under the table. But that's not what we're talking about with this whole Trump situation. This is a um, typically, or at least from what I know about it, which isn't, isn't much, not, not a lot is public about it, but it's if it's like most of these um failure to pay or tax evasion type situations. It's a very complicated, um, deliberate effort to make it difficult to catch somebody doing something wrong. Well, here's, so, well, here's the thing. <clears throat> You're right about that. And <clears throat> these are not easy cases from a prosecutorial standpoint. Um, and uh, they're often, even if they're criminal investigations, they're awful, often settled on a civil side. If you have mm-hmm. slick lawyers, which I'm sure mm-hmm. that <clears throat> Trump does, at, even though <laughs> the last few go-arounds he's had trouble finding lawyers. But anyway, um, but the interesting part is, is that I think this is more than just like, you know, hey, this is just some um, kind of misplaced numbers or things like that. Uh, the public reports, um, his, the, 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 the Vance's office has said in court filings that it is investigating the Trump organization because of public reports of, quote, possibly extensive and protracted criminal conduct, including tax and insurance fraud and falsification of business records. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. And then the other is Alan Weiselberg, Weiselberg, um, the longtime chief financial officer of the Trump organization, um, he had his own bank statements subpoenaed. Um, and apparently there's a big push and who knows what's happening behind the scenes to get him to flip. And, um, uh, the one thing that you and I both know is that when the federal government puts their mind to it, um, to put pressure on somebody, uh, to cooperate, they have a lot of tools to do that. It's it's practically an irresistible impulse when, when they mm-hmm. present it to you. And I, I know the the way that you and I typically deal with that is, you know, we, we discourage our clients from cooperating. It's easy for us from, from a lawyer's perspective to say, that's not good for the system. Uh, snitches get stitches, whatever you want to say, you know. Um, but being a person in that situation, hoping for and praying for some way to um, – you know, find some relief <laughs> from all the pressure that's being put on. I mean, look, look at Michael Cohen, the guy that said he'd take a bullet for the president yeah. ends up flipping on him like a gymnast, you know, and, uh, 
So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of the it's one of the shadier sides of well, federal practice honestly, is how it's such, such a uh, as, huge component. As much as you and I have, you know, criticized Trump or or things he's done or you know shadiness of it all or just like illegal or immoral things that have occurred, <clears throat> he's occasionally he'll make a comment that I will find myself agreeing with. So it kind of drives me crazy when that happens. But and he made numerous comments about this very subject <laughs> about, mm-hmm. how, you know, essentially the government can, you know, bend people to its will. And he's right about that, you know, and that's something that's always bothered me. In other words, the the government witnesses in a given drug case, for example, or in a white collar case are often essentially paid, not with money, but with something far more valuable, and that's time. Well, sometimes with money. Sometimes <laughs> with money, true. Sometimes, with, but, yeah. but the real value is time. In other words, time of off of prison sentence. Right. And, or, you know, you, you get to be with your family and your wife and stuff for a couple more years while you're working the case with the FBI before you ultimately, true. you know, got to go away. Well, you got to take a break, and we'll be right back. We're back from the break. I hope you all had the opportunity to rest your brains sufficiently to be pummeled by this uh, strange duo of <laughs> strange minds. My, my brain is so rested. So <laughs> rested. I know. That, that little three-minute break there does, does wonders. But uh, um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about this whole cooperator thing. And I, I agree with something that you said, and I'm glad that you did say it because um, a lot of the things that the president said, and I mean, are, are just recently, um, you know, retired president <laughs> said during his administration were things that really rang true and, and were kind of outside the ken of your average person that, that, you know, does not find themselves immersed in, criminal practice or criminal you know procedure dealing with wiretaps and search warrants and targeting people and getting them to flip and you know quite honestly uh, the, all of the problems that can become apparent if you are a participant in the system either as a defendant or a prosecutor or a defense lawyer or, or a judge but you know these are things that we've been dealing with for decades and decades and we know that's just how it is but when someone who's not you know versed in this kind of stuff i.e. Donald Trump is confronted with hey this is what happens when so- when the FBI gets their mind uh, mind's eye towards uh, prosecuting somebody that's it's practically limitless power and it's shocking um, so some of these comments that, you know, this is just appalling the amount of power and the way that they can go about doing things. Yeah. I mean, I've felt that sentiment many times breaking into a a person's house, you know, um, at whatever hour and, you know, people aren't even dressed yet and they tear the place up and it's done with, you know, no dignity, you know, being preserved whatsoever. And, a lot of people don't realize that's just what happens if you have if there's a suspicion that you've done something wrong and they get that warrant. Trust me, it's you can be 100% innocent of anything that they're accusing you of and you're still going to have to go through that ordeal because well, they have that power. The reason they have that power isn't just because um a legislative body either Congress or a state legislature has granted it to them. It's because the courts have given their stamp of approval because things right. that you're just the things that you're describing uh, 
have been long complained about by people like us, mm-hmm. right? So lawyers will appeal that, and the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court will say, you know what? Nothing to see here because um, this is law enforcement, and they're just trying to do their job. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? do, you, do you ever wonder, going back to the the old white men with white wigs and what they had in mind, because, again, the, the Fourth Amendment simply talks about uh, a warrant shall not issue except upon probable cause. Okay, so they didn't describe what a warrant was or how probable cause are established or what procedure should be used. And by the way, if we can't decide what probable cause means now in our court system, and it's certainly not defined you know, in the text of the Fourth Amendment or anywhere else for that matter in any kind of document, it's a concept. And what we hear all the time, depending upon whether the context is, what the context is, I mean – when I hear a judge say, well, probable cause in uh, one particular situation is not the same as probable cause in a different situation, even though we use the same words. And you've heard this before, right? Many the, prob- times. the probable cause that is used to establish <clears throat> the sufficiency of a complaint is is not as much probable cause or it's of a different variety than that which is required for a bind over, which is a different type of probable cause altogether from that which is required to issue a warrant. Okay. So nobody knows what it means and it's only two little words. Undefined. Right. Right. So uh, can, can you imagine, you know, if, if because of the fact that a warrant must issue when there is probable cause or an exception, which we talked about in the last show, that there would be this rubber stamp process. Now, I I know that judges will sometimes deny a search warrant, and then we don't hear about it because it doesn't result in a case, and then nobody comes to us for help. But on the other hand, I'd, I'd like to know how often that really does happen because the, the um, process by which so many warrants are obtained is really – quite disheartening when you think about it it's based on rumor innuendo hearsay all kinds of stuff that could be made up out of whole cloth and you know there's sort well, of a for minimal- example for example let's just take a typical drug case with a confidential informant and the officer will write in the the affidavit hey you know we talked to ci223 um, and he told us, you know, there's drugs in this house and guns. And, you know, we've worked with 223 in the past, and which is found him to be Lawrence found him to be reliable, right? And so all they have to do is mouth those words. And then when we inquire, well, okay, what exactly did he do that was so reliable? There's zero inquiry. I've never gotten a judge to order them to tell us what it is. They just take their word for it. Well, and that's why that that's, Frank's man line is, is helpful. And, of course, people don't know what that is. But if you're a lawyer, you might. Um, Delaware versus Frank's and State versus Man are two cases that talk about a requirement that um, when law enforcement is in the process of obtaining that warrant, they, they can't leave it at that. In other words, they can't just say, mm-hmm. we found this person to be reliable in the past and, and just leave it there because it puts an affirmative obligation on that affiant to indicate if there is a problem that a reasonable magistrate or judge would consider to be uh, a question as to that person's reliability or veracity. So that's where, you know, a lot of litigation ends up in the process of, but again, this is case, case law development that ends up being, um, 
added to the context of things. And, you know, a lot of times the courts have to jump in. And once in a while, they, they get it right. For example, in that particular context, they do. Because it's recognizing the fact that the problem starts and stops with the integrity and honesty of law enforcement. But the problem is, is that you can't challenge that. You can't right. do a Frank's man until you can offer some evidence that that's that what they said isn't true. Right. And yet, if so what the court no, gives, it if, takes away at the same time. <laughs> what, no, but if you have no way to force them to tell you, then then you're just like, okay, well, we're back to taking their word for it. Right. And then so, on the one hand, we have many examples where we're not supposed to take law enforcement's word for it because that would be um, anathema to the, 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 the fundamental freedoms that people enjoy is if we had a tolerance, some sort of tolerance for that when it's known. So as long as it's unknown, you know, it's the kind of thing that it doesn't rise to that level. But you just said something that I think is interesting to talk about, and that is, why is there a need for a showing from uh, someone challenging a warrant that there's that there might be something wrong? And you have to do more than say, it's got to be more than guesswork, it's got to be more than speculation. What that is, it's hard to say. But sometimes you have to figure out, like, who the CI is, and sometimes they won't tell you until much later if they're going to call this person to trial, which sometimes requires rejecting a plea agreement in order to get that information. So you really are taking it to trial. There's all these layers of insulation right, that right. keep it from from uh, you know truly litigating and investigating a case. But so the idea behind this, and this also applies in other areas where the defense would have a right to do a certain thing. However. And the, they require this burden of production and a, and a burden of, you know, at least stating some facts in good faith that to shift the burden back over to the prosecution to show that it was not, you know, um, something that needed to be included in a warrant. But the reason they do that, this is this comes down to the efficiencies of the court system and litigation and everything else. They want to make it so the courts aren't flooded with these, you know, blanket sort of boilerplate requests for that type of information or to have a hearing on such things so that it's a fishing expedition. You ever notice that I, when I was a kid, I never thought the term fishing expedition was like a bad thing. I thought, Hey, <laughs> fun. that it's sounds all, hey, amazing. Well, not wait. only is it fishing, but it's like a whole expedition. Like, gonna, like you're in the yeah. jungle or something. I don't right, know, man. I'm like, right. This is awesome. But of course, as you and I know, those are bad words in the law. It means you're doing something that is a waste of everyone's time and you don't know if you're really going to well, find anything or not. Here's the, here's the thing is that is that in theory and according to certain cases like Brady and Giglio, we're supposed to get all of these production of information from the government about things which will help our client or things which show that a witness isn't biased or whatever. And and so it looks, at least to the government, is that we have all these rights about um, getting information. But the truth is, is that most of the things that we want to find out are beyond our reach. Even even if we can make some sort of a, a preliminary showing that we have a right to them, things like you know, um, uh, uh, witness counseling records or things like the, the knowing who the CI is or knowing about their background or criminal history. And, um, and all of that is stuff we have to fight for. And we shouldn't have to fight for that, to be honest. Right. Well, I mean, in, in an ideal world, we wouldn't. But there are all of these things that stand in the way of that. Oh, I know. Well, time for another well, break and we'll be back right after these messages. 
We are back with more Fourth Amendment talk from Legal Defense with John and Kirk. <laughs> that sounds like such an exciting show. Like that how, sounds like something that? that would be on NPR at midnight on a Thursday. You know, it's no, Fourth Amendment talk. You know, that's that's an interesting point, is because I think the Fourth Amendment and Fifth and Sixth and many of the others are fascinating. And I think other people will think they are too, as long as you don't describe them in a way that puts people to sleep. Right. So it has to be on at midnight. Well, that's why they're all short. That's why all the amendments are so short, you know, so that you don't get lost in the shuffle. So let's do this. Let's let's talk just briefly about because um, <clears throat> we were talking about, OK, well, there's there's this warrant requirement and and there's this problem with, you know, what constitutes probable cause and all that. Right. Well, there's also. I haven't counted the number exactly, but like a hundred exceptions to the warrant. More, more being created every day. Yes, and they're all they're all just created out of whole cloth by the Supreme Court and other courts. And um, and so let me indulge me for a second. And I'm not trying to put anybody to sleep here, but I will read the text of the Fourth Amendment, and then we will discuss what. I think is um, one of the operative words that creates all of these exceptions. Okay. Now, so if you can pick out the word, the single word in this text, okay, quote, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized. Okay. So what's the one word that is like the linchpin of all those exceptions? <laughs> um, and, and it's a very, very common word in the law that's used all the time. Well, uh, just tell me. I, I, all, Un, all of them are unreasonable. Oh yeah. Unreasonable. Right. On against unreasonable searches and seizures. And That's so, almost as vague as reasonable. So. It is. It's <laughs> even worse. And this is something that Antonin Scalia had seized upon in numerous cases, even though he was like a big supporter of getting warrants or forcing you to get warrants in uh, okay. numerous yeah. contexts. I see why you say that now. Yes. Okay. It's so it's so you know, it's it's a, there's there's okay, so for example, officer comes up to your car. And um, see something in the back seat, little marijuana plant. I don't know a gun or you know just anything that might reasonably be looked at as un unreasonable. He can go in and search your car mm. because, and he can seize that because it's in plain sight. It's mm -hmm. called the plain view doctrine. There's, there's, um, you know, if they uh, do a traffic stop and they don't search your car, but um, they find you don't have a license, so they. You know, they tow your car. Well, they can do an inventory search of your car. Right. Yeah. You know, we wanted, I love that. We want to make sure there weren't any bombs in the car. So yeah, I know. You know we had to look through the car. I know. I know. I know. I love how I love how police are trained to ask, "Hey, you have any uh, bombs or explosives or guns or anything?" And you're, you know, it's just like, <laughs> and when you say no, they're like, stop. they're like, I didn't like, like the way he said no. It seems odd to me. There's a little so grandpa's like, oh my goodness, no, I don't have any bombs. I, <laughs> there might be guns, I don't know, but <laughs> but um, yeah. you know, so all of these exceptions, um, they, I don't know, they kind of drive me crazy because because they're 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 nothing the guys in white wigs came up with. That's just something that 
um, uh, you know, the, yeah, it leaves kind of the door capable of being flung wide open. And, and I can think of many, many examples where that I can hear, I can hear the voice of the judge saying how it would be unreasonable to view, you know, this type of limitation on law enforcement. So, you know, and that's why we have the, it's, it's this bigger picture view where they look and say, well, do we want law enforcement officers to be able to do this or not? And typically, you know, most judges are former prosecutors and they worry about getting reelected and they worry about what the headlines will say if they, you know, grant a suppression motion. I'm sure that happens. Not, you know, not everyone, of course, but there are those that are out there that are like that. And it's just the easiest thing in the world to justify a view if you're looking at society values the the role of law enforcement and we want to allow them to do things to detect and deter crime and blah 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 i mean you could say that about literally anything yeah but <laughs> the fourth amendment as with all of the amendments at least the first 10 um were meant to be barriers they were meant to be restrictions and um and which leads many to interpret the Constitution as a whole as a restrictive document and not just something granting, you know, vast powers. Although, of course, that's a matter of debate among scholars, but the, uh, as to the whole document, but as to the Fourth Amendment and the Bill of Rights, um, it's meant to be this barrier, um, uh, between citizens and the government. And you remember, of course, that, that this particular amendment was instituted because of the use of general warrants. Mm-hmm. General warrants were, you know, they just come in, search whenever they want, however they want. Yeah, martial um, law, basically. Yeah. It was, and so now the fact that, that you had no right to privacy and you had no right to. And, you know, another reason this was so important to, you know, the white men with white wigs at the time was that. There had been reform in in England proper uh, on many of these issues. It had been taking, you know, building steam uh, in the, you know, parts of the United Kingdom, namely, you know, England, where, uh, you know, a lot of the criminal procedures that we have now were, were started in England before we adopted those particular procedures. But the colonies were considered you know, different and didn't have the same degree of rights and protections. And it was basically considered, you know, an unruly group of people that needed to be controlled. So there was a suspension of what many scholars and learned people had believed to be fundamental um, components of an orderly and successfully functioning society. So, you know, it was fine-tuned to the, the negative experience that had been seen compared to um, how some of these reforms had been implemented in other parts of the world and that the colonies had held back as though we were basically, you know, misbehaving children that needed to be, um, you know, monitored and with, very, with different, a, different rules. That's not a wholly inaccurate analogy, and that's exactly yeah. what colonies were viewed. Um, these, these were different types of colonies than the British generally had or would have, for example, in India or in in various countries in Africa, Nigeria, for example, you know, and um, where, you know, in the American colonies, well, those were largely British subjects. Citizens. And and white. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, but, you know, I think a lot of it came down to 
how they were going to just run their finances. And they wanted to, they basically wanted to use the American colonies as a piggy bank mm-hmm. to fund all of their strife with France and Spain. Spain. And, um, you know, and that's essentially what was going on there. So, you know, I think the American colonists had a legitimate gripe. <laughs> well, we, um, wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. No, well, we would be here in some other form, I'm sure. But uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's, you know, it's for all the warts that the Constitution has. Um, the thing that disturbs me, though, is that the, the the Bill of Rights is really one of the remarkable historical documents of all time. Um, and I refer to it as a document, even though it's part of a bigger document, but <laughs> it's an <laughs> amendment. It's an amendment of the Constitution, but um, but it really was um, an amazing statement. And it's kind of nice that they're that they're compacted into this set of amendments so that you can really view them. They aren't like dispersed throughout the constitution. Right. You can kind of, kind of view them in, um, in a, in a laser focus, uh, because there's really no other country that has these in that sort of, um, uh, crystallized, uh, view, you know, um, and, and certainly not the first amendment. Uh, but, you know, I, but the disheartening thing, and we can pick this up in another show and maybe really explore it, is is this process of judicial interpretation that really guts any meaning out of it. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, reasonable people can always disagree about what, you know, this statute means or this constitutional provision means or, you know, or tease out this the meaning of this word or emphasize something else, you know. But... Um, the bigger drift has always been pro-government and pro and while the the drift of the the original founders seemed to be to restrict the government anti-government the, the <laughs> drift the drift of modern interpretation seems to be empower the government mm-hmm. so that's that's the troubling and um thing that really needs to, it's, and it's difficult for lay people to understand Right. You know, well, that's all the time we have, John. So we'll be oh, back no. next week as we are here every Saturday morning as we have been for, gosh, I think like almost 14 years now. But uh, oof. I mean, our show's been on longer than some other people that have radio shows have been alive, you know, uh, <laughs> some of those YouTubers. but uh, we'll be back next week at eight o'clock right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. It's been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.